Hey everybody, I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder and editor of Blister, and today I am very happy to be sharing with you the very first episode of our new podcast, Crafted. On Crafted, we are going to be diving deep into the craft world to explore how things get made, and our guides in these episodes are going to be some of the remarkable people that insist on making things well. To kick things off here on Crafted, we are talking with Brandon Caps, the founder of New Image Brewing, and it is very fitting that I am talking to Brandon first here on the show, and we'll talk about why that's the case in our conversation. Now, anyone who is keyed in to the craft beer scene in Colorado certainly is very familiar with New Image. Over the past several years, New Image has grown a reputation for producing very high quality brews and also not being afraid to innovate. But if that sounds to you like the sorts of things that people might say about, I don't know, a bunch of craft breweries, well, then I definitely encourage you to listen to this conversation because I have said it many times, I have met few people that are able to articulate their rationale for why they are doing all of the things that they are doing in their brewing and production process. But another thing you're gonna find here is that Brandon also cares a whole lot about the broader business and specifically the people he works with at New Image and the kind of culture that he is trying to create and that he would love to see throughout the broader craft industry. So with all that said, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Brandon Caps. And we'll just say it up front. I am definitely going to have Brandon back on where we might have a more focused conversation just on the science and the art of brewing. But chances are we're also going to have Brandon back to have some maybe even broader and more wide ranging conversations too. But let's now go ahead and kick off this whole new crafted podcast with Brandon Caps. Here we go. All right, well, I am here once again in this very spot with Brandon here in Denver. But Brandon, I'm going to let you say more specifically where we are. Yeah, cool. Um, we are at our production facility and our newest brewery tap room in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, directly adjacent to Denver, <laughs> towards the mountains, correct direction, right <laughs> off of I-70. Um, yeah. So I'm wrong for just, I, I think of this as Denver. I'm in Denver right now. Technically, no. Technically, no. But like Denver is, a, it, it's a kind of a small metro. Yeah. Like, you know, as far as cities go, if you know, you're used to Chicago yeah. and I'm used to Atlanta. And, yeah. um, but, you know, we're 10 minutes from the Capitol building still. Like, yeah. Uh, so it's just <laughs> kind of funny that we're in the quote suburbs, but that is how people tend to think about it in the metro area despite the fact that I could ride a bike to a protest if I wanted to. Right, right. <laughs> That's really the measure of whether you're not in the oh, suburbs. can you ride, you can a ride a bike to a protest? To a protest. I yeah. like that. I like that. The last time I was here, and we are in the back, um, the last time I was here, I feel like you made me taste like, it felt like something like 40 different types of beers. That's probably an exaggeration, but we did a be. lot of taste. Yeah, we did. We did a um, lot of tasting. There's a lot to taste. There, yeah. there is a lot to taste. Yeah. We're going to get into it. You make a lot of different beers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, 
let's back up for a second because what I want to do is talk about a couple of the last times we hung out. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the the very last time I actually recall quite uh, well because it was like last week. Yeah. <laughs> and we were mountain biking together in Salt Lake City, actually, uh, riding bobsled. You introduced me to bobsled. Yep. It's a fun time. That was really fun. I'm trying to think. The time before that, I think we were actually... Well, time for that was here. Yeah, it was here in mm-hmm. Wheat Ridge. But was that the same trip where we also skied A-Basin? It was the day after. We did. We met up here on Monday. We skied A-Basin on Sunday. Yeah. And by the way, that trip, you introduced me to, do you remember, the new, the, well, new-ish zone at Arapahoe Basin, but I'd never oh, yeah, skied it. Steep Gullies. Steep Gullies. Oh, yeah. So basically, you just introduced me to, like, cool lines. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm here to do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do also brew beer as a hobby. <laughs> oh, right. Um, but I'm I'm ma- mainly just a, a really mediocre professional mountain biker and skier <laughs> who will never be paid to do those things. <laughs> and uh, and a very good brewer. Uh, which Hobbyist. Is, which is, you're Hobbyist not a... Hobbyist brewer. No, you're not. Okay. <laughs> um, and then actually the time before that, well, you were at our Blister Summit... Mm-hmm. But we didn't actually ski very much together at the summit because somebody got wrecked. That's true. Yeah. To be fair, though, I did that on, what was that? That was Thursday. So that was like the in-between between A and B. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. That was fun. That was a good time. <laughs> Again, I I blame the Black Op 118s for no longer being on my feet when I crashed. <laughs> Are you claiming pre-release? No, no, no. I'm claiming that those skis were so amazing and just ate everything underneath me that when I got back on my own skis, um, they did not do all of the work that I was expecting them to do based on the oh, prior two days of skiing. Oh, gotcha. And I, uh, yeah, I mean, cause I went from these super incredibly heavy skis that were just eating everything under yeah. me back to these like nice lightweight skis yeah. that I do love and do not blame for the record. What I blame was me dropping into big shoot on my first run of the day without taking like any run to reacquaint with the skis gotcha. that I got back on after two straight powder days on the black ops. Oh, okay. Um, this, this makes more sense now. Yeah. Those yeah. black ops are, confidence inspiring they are confidence inspiring yeah Yeah. well i'm really excited to be kicking off this whole crafted podcast with you this is uh very fitting because it was frankly a number of conversations about like well many things as we tend to do when we get together but it was in talking with you and learning a bit more you know i guess specifically about kind of the state of craft beer and kind of that culture and especially maybe those breweries that are really, really doing things at a high level with a lot of intentionality. And it just was interesting to kind of learn more about maybe some of the pros and cons of being in that scene, as you've kind of already said, like, and you don't need to take my word for this, I promise Brandon will impress you with this. Like you are someone who is very passionate about beer, can speak to the manufacturing of beer in a remarkable way. But then you also are super passionate about skiing and mountain bike and all these other things. And like that kind of all got me thinking about, well, this Blister Craft Collective and what we might do to kind of highlight 
some of the companies that we just think are doing things with a lot of intentionality and trying to the best of their ability or as they understand it to kind of, quote, do things the right way. Anyway, that led to me calling you one day and being like, hey, I got this idea for this thing. And Mm -hmm. then fast forward and here we are right now. Yeah. Let's back up a bit and um, just talk a bit more about new image. And then we'll actually back up further and talk a bit about how you got here. But for people who ask, so what is new image? When did you start it? And what does it look like today? Yeah. Um, So I started new image Uh, Like, you know, filed the business licensing paperwork in 2014, signed a lease in 2015 out here in Colorado, opened the doors of the tap room in 2016. I was 23 uh, when we started. Um, And uh, it was actually the second brewery that I started. But I started New Image because I had tried already jumping ship on the career that I went to school for, which was electrical engineering for the brewing industry. Um, and I'd moved to Pittsburgh to do so. And there were a lot of things that I was loving about it, but there were a lot of things that weren't quite hitting it for me. And one of the big things was just location. I love Pittsburgh. I love a lot of things about Pittsburgh. Um, but ultimately I am an absolute outdoor junkie. I want to be in the mountains as much as I possibly can. And, um, I had been coming to Colorado since I was three years old for skiing and, fly fishing and rock climbing and everything else. And so I wanted to live here for as long as I could remember um, and decided like, well, I'm 23 years old. I have literally nothing to lose. Uh, the moonshot would be owning a brewery and living in Colorado. Let's just go for it. Hmm. Um, and at that particular time, I was going through uh, some pretty rough things emotionally. And uh, there was like this one night I was sitting in my room and just thought like, I need a fresh start and a new image. Then that just stuck in my head and I was like, that's the dumbest name ever. It sounds like a hair salon or um, some kind of like snake oil Instagram influencer brand bullshit. Um, but uh, it just stuck. And, it, you know, it's it's continued to fit with our approach, how we try to see the world and talk about it. Um, and and having the imagination to say that things like can be different and should be different. And rather than just talking about it, let's try Um, so that's sort of the all encapsulating story of how I started it in terms of emotional state and why I chose Colorado and so on and so forth. Yeah. I love the hair salon idea. Now I've (laughs) never thought of that before. Like, and now it probably will only think of that. So Mm -hmm. thank you for that one. Uh, thanks for that association. I think before, I mean, frankly, one of the most fun things, uh, about our conversations is when I ask you just a question about making beer or why you went this way and not that way. And then like your answer wraps up like 12 minutes later. Like you can talk about beer like no one I've ever been around. Uh, By the way, compliment coming your way. Our friend Connor Brown, Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, I was talking with recently, described you as being hyper intelligent and i don't know if he meant in general or if it was about beer in particular so maybe we'll just say about beer yeah because like i don't you know i don't know we want to give you carte blanche like yeah. hyper intelligent but um but i think before we get there because i know that this matters a lot to you and in fact in our conversations like it's like yeah you you do make beer and you go through the manufacturing process again with a lot a lot of intentionality but 
you always kind of push our conversations back as you did a bit earlier when we were hanging out and I was having pizza and you were having a salad, talking about some of the broader things you're interested uh, when you are running and growing a company. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about those aspects that are kind of priorities of yours. Yeah. Um, boy, it is an ever changing, ever shifting uh, like goalpost to try to figure out what's like most important about running a company at a given time. But I would say that the the core element of especially the last two years where my priorities have been and what I've been spending the most time thinking about um, is just people. The people yeah. that we employ, the people that we work with as vendors, uh, the people that we serve as customers, um, both at the retail and wholesale levels, um, but and then most especially employees. Um, there was a lot of things uh, about last year that were actually really good. We had some kind of record numbers in liquor stores for certain types of products, probably our best year ever in terms of just acclaim, hype, and um, respect for what we do, especially in the field of IPAs. But if you ask me point blank, what am I most proud of in 2021 that we did? Um, it's that we added uh, full-time healthcare for our entire staff, um, you know, assuming they opt in, so on and so forth. But being able to move from that space where, and this is where I see a lot of overlap between like brewing industry and ski industry mm-hmm. and these entertainment industries is moving from this space of everything being bootstrapped and everything being like, you're here because the culture's fun and the job's fun, but you just have to sacrifice everything about being a professional and having a living wage and having benefits. Like I'm tired of that narrative. It's been a trope in the brewing industry for entirely too long. And I'm very happy that a trend in the brewing industry right now is professionality, becoming truly competitive employers and not just, that we pay more than the other brewery next door for doing brewing work, but that we have benefits programs and retirement programs and that we just really genuinely care about having a sustainable work lifestyle for people investing more heavily in equipment that makes the brewing work, which is extremely labor intensive, more safe, more doable, more sustainable so that we're not aging employees out and we're not, um, being, uh, unintentionally discriminative by considering someone's physical strength when we're making a hire. So that, that's a lot of what's been most important to me lately is, uh, the people, you know, having a transparent relationship with our customers where we speak to what it is that is the value of our obviously more expensive product than you know, maybe general market price for every craft beer. Yeah. I'd say those are some of like my top things. Mm-hmm. That seems consistent with the things we talk about a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to go back further into your own background, but before we do, mm-hmm. I think you should tell the people what we are currently drinking on this Friday afternoon. Yeah. This is a beer called Fanny Pack. We did multiple iterations of this beer with some recipe changes over the course of about a year trying to dial in the profile and really make sure that we felt that it was a strong candidate to become a year-round offering. And then it actually, this batch is the first batch of this beer as a year-round offering. So I'm by no means done. Like I'm what not, we're drinking right correct. now, yeah, first yeah. batch. Look at us. No, first, big de- no big deal, people. Yeah, not to yeah. brag, but... And so this is the the sixth batch under that brand that we've brewed, but this is the first batch that is no longer seeing big changes batch to batch. This will be the profile that we're targeting for this beer 
for the foreseeable future. And with all of our year-round, you know, permanent beers, we continue to make changes with time and adapt them with time to changing palettes and ingredients and processes and stuff. But the major, you know, throwing of the darts has been narrowed down and we're closer to the bullseye now, hmm. which is why it's a now a year-round beer. Say more about how this beer is different than a number of your other IPAs, double yeah. IPAs, et cetera. Totally. Like, let's go a little bit into the weeds here. So we're um, in, in the beer space, we're very much known for IPAs. We were one of the first breweries making hazy IPA in Colorado and pretty early about it um, on the East Coast too. But from the get-go, my whole goal with IPA brewing and why I wanted to do it differently back in like 2012 when I started doing this professionally was everyone was kind of trying to do IPAs where the the grain character was very clean and unintrusive. The yeast character was very clean and unintrusive and it was just nuked with hops. And that's mm -hmm. like the old school West Coast IPAs. And you can think of like Stone Ruination and Green Flash Palette Records. It's incredibly intensely bitter mm -hmm. IPAs. And at the time it was like a war to see who could make the most bitter face scrunching thing of all time. I hated those when I got mm -hmm. into the industry. And I I thought, well, these hop like hops have these super fruity tropical flavors um and there are also yeast that make fruity and tropical flavors what if we try to build one more cohesive picture where all these flavors are complemented there's a little more sweetness from the base beer there's more fruit character coming from the yeast there's we focus the hop selection on really tropical fruit flavors and build this one cohesive picture and so that's something that's been an effort of mine over the last decade and then in about the last year and a half we've had this emerging trend in the beer industry of these IPAs where we're specifically trying to create a flavor compound called the thiol, which is a sulfur derived flavor compound. And these have, these molecules taste like fruit when it has gotten just overripe. You know, think of grabbing a bag of peaches from a peach stand, eating three of the four you bought and then leaving one in the paper bag for like a week, forgetting about it coming back. It's not quite like rotting or bad yet, but it's just super, super ripe and soft and just really expressive. And this new recent trend in IPA making that's been efficated by some changes in products and methods that are available to us have allowed us to invest even further into this rabbit hole I originally wanted to dive down with IPA, which was making making this beer derived from traditional brewing ingredients that tastes like a tropical fruit juice. It's really easy drinking. It's very soft and mellow and all the flavor comp components are very cohesive uh, from beginning to end rather than having these really sharp, high contrast flavor components. And I don't know if most people think about flavors uh, in the same way that I do. I tend to kind of liken them to images. And, you know, this is more like a watercolor painting of flavors rather than like an HDR photo. Huh. <laughs> um and uh, yeah, but it's just it's very easy drinking, mellow beer that it really kind of hot weather, cold weather, it fits the bill for everything. But it really marries a lot of technique process and thoughtful ingredient selection towards an extremely efficient outcome, um, which has very much been a lot of my approach from the beginning. Hmm. I think I want you to say more about that. If somebody's listening to this and if they haven't had a new image beer or maybe they've had a new image beer but they are still don't have a great handle on like this brewery what would you say how do you think 
you differentiate yourselves as a brewery? We talked a bit about some of your emphasis on the, you know, in terms of employee relations and treatment and the like. But when it comes to the specific brewing process and manufacturing, what are some of the things that you think you do here that maybe sets you a bit apart? Yeah. An overarching theme of what we do differently is no one big thing that I could point to easily that's easily explained to an audience who's not fully invested in this as their career. It's a ton of little things. Uh Um, We have a reverse osmosis water filter at the start of our process that allows us to completely eliminate variability from water supply. Even though we're on a municipal water supply, there's Mm -hmm. still sufficient variability to frustrate somebody for whom that is important. So um, that's a kind of a rare find for a brewery, especially of our size. Uh, We have a four vessel brewing system as opposed to traditionally you'll see people with a two vessel usually. Um, Having four, it's a very, very small impact to have the processes that happen in each of those separate um, brewing tanks be isolated that way. But it it's a, you know, two to 3% difference that I want that makes our beer that much better. And it, again, hard to articulate this simply, but we have extremely thoughtful approaches to how we use every ingredient. I was talking about this in an interview earlier today. You know, we don't just select the hops that we like. We use them at specific temperatures and times and with specific types of agitation. Maybe we agitate one type of hop in a dry hop with a pump and we agitate a different type of hop with CO2 um, in the same method at the same temperature. But we really dive as far into the weeds as we possibly can on every tiny little dial we can tweak. Another brewery owner who I really respect um, once said something to me that really resonated with me, which is that um, they're, they make some phenomenal lagers called Beerstadt Lager House, very well known in the Denver metro area and across the country by, uh, especially industry people. And Ashley, their head brewer was telling me, um, you know, people ask me all the time how we make our lagers so well. And they kind of expect me to have these like guarded secrets about our approach. And my thought is I'll tell you exactly how we make our beer because you'll never do it. It's too mm. much work. Mm. Um, <laughs> It takes too much time, too much labor, and people get burnt out by it. And that's something that um, really resonates with me because one of the things that we do all the way across the board is every annoying, labor-intensive, time-intensive, costly minutia of a thing we possibly could to make the beer better. Um, Whether or not every single person can taste that in the final outcome is, I would say it's up for debate, but it's... Probably not like most of the time, but for us, it, it means a lot to us that we make that effort on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't get into listing all these processes cause it's just a bunch of like a mix of modern and uh, historic brewing terms that are just going to sound like gibberish to a lot of people. But, um, we really try to dive as intensely as we can into every step of every process, every ingredient, you know, really care, being careful and thoughtful. Uh, from start to finish. Um, And that's not to say that we're the only ones. We're certainly not. But it is also a luxury that's afforded by being at the scale we're at where there's even equipment that we can afford to acquire to do these things. Mm -hmm. And um, lab equipment we can afford to have to guarantee a certain level of quality assurance to people. So um, it's a mixture of things that are efficated by the size that we are, as well as having gathered the team of people who are willing to do this ridiculous list of chores I put on the Mm -hmm. schedule on a regular basis. Hearing you say that, 
I'm trying to decide if this is uh, unwise to say, but it resonates hearing you talk about that in thinking through like our approach at Blister, like how we have approached gear reviews kind of from day one and how we have modified and evolved that practice. Like nothing, we spend like basically no time just figuring out how to do it faster and easier. It's only kind of getting more intensive, you know, like as we evolve and think through, well, this would be another element that we could add to the review. And then we created freaking blister labs, right? So, but I think that probably I'm also thinking a lot about, uh, and I told you this earlier today, like I'm thinking a lot right now, like what do we mean when we're talking about craft and sort of what qualifies a company to kind of really earn or get that kind of designation and what would kind of rule out a company. And for the record, I have no interest right now to sort of create like hard and fast definitions for this. But I think one hallmark that we will likely hear time and time again, whether we're talking to a brewery or a coffee roaster or a tea maker or whatever, is people that really, really sweat the details, even when it's really debatable whether the ultimate customer could tell the difference or not. Mm -hmm. And I think I care about that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was was just in my own head in this spiral just now trying to think about a a definition that would be fitting at all Um, because there's so many different ways. In craft beer, there's been a specific effort to define craft beer and to eliminate certain people from it. And Mm. a lot of it centers around size and ownership. Totally. But I I honestly, I won't say that that's the most fair thing either because it's, it's myopic to think that craft can only refer to something being hand produced at a small scale uh, by someone with limited resources, because there's a serious craft to having technology and entire research divisions and consumer product testing, you know, at your fingertips, you can learn so much more about what you do when you have all these resources. So I think that what it boils down to is really the intent that's at the heart of it. And I think that something that is common amongst crafts people, that group is truly being dedicated to making something for the end user that is better than they even know that they want it to be. Hmm. Whether it will be appreciated or not, it's it's something that you kind of do for yourself to have that self-satisfaction of, I made the best thing I possibly could. And some of those, so for some people that is monetized really well, for others, maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. But size and scale excluded from that conversation, it's, it's the passion and the intention. I think at the point that you are simply doing something in order to make money by giving someone as little of what they are perceptively paying for as possible, that's where you've lost the ability to to call yourself craft-focused. It's where the product has a higher emphasis than the the profit, I suppose. And not that they have to be mutually exclusive, because they shouldn't be. They can't be, right? And that's going to be an interesting thing, I think, that we'll kind of explore or dip in and out of 
with probably many of the conversations that we have, you know, on crafted, but, but yeah, sorry, but keep going. Yeah. No, I think that, I think that more or less sums it up. It's, is the commitment to making a product you're truly proud of? And is that, does that at the end of the day kind of trump everything else? Because we all have, I mean, God, look at the last couple of years. Like it's been a real challenge for businesses of all sizes to adapt and change to the landscape that's been created by COVID and um, recessions and all these different, you know, bigger picture things that are out of our control. And we have to adapt to those as businesses. And it is very much just a job at the end of the day when you're having to deal with a lot of these things. But if you can still maintain a commitment to product integrity and a commitment that when a customer chooses to buy something from your brand, there's a level of execution and expectation that's always there and that you're always committed to. I think that's, that's what craft is about, at least to me. That's my definition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I think that something that's fair to be said about a lot of people who do truly marry themselves to that definition is that they would rather fail as a business um, yep. Yep. financially yep. than succeed making a product that they can't really stake their conscience on. Um, I would absolutely I like consider myself yep. in that. I, I've said that so many times, like, yeah, um, with Blister, like if we have to start just sort of dumbing everything down or going super short and cliche riddled or, you know, like I just would rather walk away. Yeah. I, and the line I always say is like, I'd rather just walk away. Like it's an interesting world out there. There's other things I could do with my time. Mm -hmm. But when you feel like you're really doing it the right way and continuing to iterate and evolve and doing that with like-minded people and you know a lot of our team i mean they're like we work with some terrific people and when you're all kind of in that shared vision for something it's pretty great and and but i think having that like if we can't make this work on our terms the way we think it ought to be done we'll just walk away we'll, we'll close shop mm -hmm. or in the very least because we have to operate on a lot of other people's terms especially when you're talking about like a controlled substance mm, um, yeah more but, than you have more overseers maybe than we yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, but if we, if we can work around the red tape and the expectations and the rules and the regulations and the economic realities and still make something that we're truly proud of, mm -hmm. then we're happy to do it at the point that we have to compromise that element. Um, we're no longer doing what we set out to. Um, so that's my definition of craft. That's what it means for me. And, you know, whether it's beer, skis, bikes, whatever. I mean, shoot, we could be delivering venue uh, portable toilets. And there's still a way to do that where you're dedicated to right, the product. Right, the right way. You know, and not cutting corners. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's that's what we aim to do with everything that we do. I said a long time ago that we were going to dive back into your own background. You mentioned going to school for electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. What came first, an interest in engineering or an interest in beer? Oh, uh, engineering. Um, yeah, I when I was like 14 years old, one of my like teachers at the time just like told me to be an engineer. She's like, you should be an engineer. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. You were really docile back then. Dude, it's it's kind of funny. Like, I, I don't know. Um, but it made a lot of sense. Like, I looked into, I looked into like the, you know, salary prospects of engineers, the type of work they got to mm. do, the sort of things. Like I was the type of kid that when I was like 12 years old, I had a little side business where I would fix people's broken computers. Um, and, uh, he, like six, no, 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 12. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like I, 
I've always been a nerd. I've always been someone who likes to get into the weeds on things. I've always been someone who wants to design something way more complicated than any user could ever appreciate. And that is like the hallmark of being an engineer. <laughs> Watch any engineer design anything or talk about anything designed and how no one appreciates it the way they want. Um, I very much fit the personality type. So it, it was an apt choice. Um, I also just liked challenges and getting into it, you know, top tier engineering program and succeeding there was just a very important to my ego at the time. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, I really didn't, I didn't drink at all until, um, I really got into the industry. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't a party in high school. I was a total prude kid. Like I was at, I'm not, I'm not religious anymore, but I was at, back then I was at church like three, four days a week for band practice and everything mm. else. Like I didn't have time to screw around and get into trouble. But uh, I got to college, wasn't really a partier either. My school wasn't particularly fun for <laughs> partying anyway. Um, so uh, it was really, I got a job while I was still in school. It was part of my program to gain engineering experience, but I ended up getting a job at Anheuser-Busch in Cartersville. And I, I took that job for a few reasons. One was I wanted managerial experience because it always had some weird baseline inclination that I wanted to be in a position where I was running a team of some sort, whether that was owning a business or working for a larger company, I didn't know. Um, so I saw the people management experience opportunity. There was some technical experience I was interested in. Uh, but then like, you know, I was 19 and my friends were like, dude, Budweiser's got an internship. That's mm. cool. And I was like, that is cool. Mm. I would be cool if I did that. Um, so I got a job uh, that I thought would be cool. And uh, turned out it was. Uh, no one ever wanted to talk to me about my work uh, at the Center for Natural Engineering Solu or Natural Energy Solutions. But, dude, people want to talk about beer all the time. And I got a little bit, like, I got enamored with that, just the, the cool factor. Um, and then by way of working at that company and learning about the process. I started homebrewing to try to better understand some projects I was doing. And it brought out this artistic side of myself that I had just sort of repressed for being pragmatic because I was a musician and I did physical media art as a kid, but somewhere along the line, literally, I think that same person that told me to be an engineer was like, don't be an artist. You don't want to starve. Uh -huh. um, be an engineer. Um, and so I discovered this way to like, Hey, maybe I can do both. I can be technical and I can run a business and I can be a scientist, um, but I can also be an artist. So um, that was kind of what pulled me into this rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and here we are here over a decade later, a decade later, here you are. And can we mention some of the other spots? Yeah. Let's talk about it. Other spots that like I've worked at or started with? Well, with or? New Image. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because the original. Mm-hmm location right so we opened that in 2016 and my goal was just to be a little tiny brew pub we had a restaurant from the get-go which is pretty atypical especially for small startup breweries and for good reason running restaurants is hard yeah yeah <laughs> as we've learned time and time again um but uh yeah i just you know i brewed the beer in the back during the day and i work the bar in the evenings and um you know just wanted to make cool beers that uh i could put in front of people that lived in the neighborhood and um you know we just struck a chord we were doing things that people really wanted in a lot larger scale than a small brew pub in a district that wasn't particularly popular at the time and it's been interesting because simultaneously we've grown a ton as a distributing brand in colorado uh, over the last six years but then the district that we chose very intentionally seeing it as a place that 
old town Arvada at the time, people were just like, oh, it's far Vada. It's out in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. No one goes there. And now it's like one of the fastest growing retail districts in Metro Denver. And it's super popular. And we've got light rail and there's people in sundresses and Lululemon (laughs) cruising around caring about what they buy dresses <laughs> <laughs> and lululemon mm-hmm. that's the that's the, those are the two marks that yeah. uh an area is really up but hey i love my sundresses i mean so. yeah yeah i mean i not to wear i don't i don't look great in a sundress what but do you I, mountain bike in <laughs> oh, hey you don't i've ridden with you you don't mountain bike in sundresses at least not all the time not all the time okay yeah i'm curious to hear over the years how some of your own personal tastes in beer varietals, can we say varietals? Do we have to say types? Is varietals? Varietals, styles. Styles. How have those things shifted or actually stayed the same since Mm -hmm. you've been in the game? And and I mean, you guys, I'll I'll have you talk, maybe I'll have you talk first about, I mean, you guys just brew a lot of stuff. It's a broad range. Mm -hmm. So you're playing with a lot of styles. Has that, fact sort of shifted what you personally are kind of most into. Mm. Yeah. I mean, definitely what we make has influenced my interests and what I consume the most. I would say the largest trend in my beer consumption over the last like seven or eight years has been the reduction of it. (laughs) You know, just getting getting older and like looking around and being like, man, my friends are having kids and like Hmm. I don't just want to be like a dude that drinks a shit ton of beer every day. Hmm. Um, And so I've also gravitated towards things that are, you know, lower in ABV and just things that I could have on a more regular basis without being unhealthy. So I'd say that like my recent choices are more lifestyle focused than they are uh, anything else. But mm. across the board, if if I'm just trying to pick from a, a menu of beers I'm interested in, there's not a particular style that I'm like, I'll never drink that. There's mm-hmm. not a particular style that I'm only ever going to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, you know, whenever I go to a place and ask people for recommendation, they say, what do you like? I'm like, I make beer for a living. Yeah. I like anything that's made well. Yep. And I don't mean that disingenuously like if it's made well i want to try it even if it's something that i may have never tried before i still i just i want to see what other people who are you know mastering their craft are producing um so that i can inform my own understanding of what i do um so yeah i don't know like every every day if i'm just hanging out or like you know, drinking some of the trailhead, it's probably going to be like an easy drinking IPA like Fanny Pack or uh, one of our lagers, the dead of winter, smoked porters and imperial stouts and barley wines I like to dig into a little bit more. Wait, barley wines? Oh, yeah. Now we just went the other way in terms oh, yeah. of ABV. Okay. Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like my like my small pour sippers yeah. um, for sure. And uh, and I also I really enjoy cocktails too, but we don't need to dive down that <laughs> rabbit hole right now. Um yeah, I, like I genuinely just well-made things from whomever they're made by uh, and and for whatever they are, but just for being well-made and having consumed enough beer and made enough beer at this point to pretty objectively drink something and be able to appreciate the quality of it regardless of whether or not I have a particular palatal preference for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That actually checks out. I'm going to... I'm gonna... Like if we had you hooked up to like a, we don't have you hooked up to a lie detector, but from other conversations we've had, I would say that that resonates. Like 
for example, we were at a different brewery, not New Image, um, recently. And I, we were figuring out like, what are you going to get? What, you know, what am I going to get? And I was like, maybe I'll try this. And you were like, I wouldn't like, I'm just not sure that particular brewery cares really about that style. It's more of a style they kind of like sort of have to carry because it's a popular style. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to check out right with like, let's try to stick to, you know, those beers where you think you have insight, where a company really cares about that process. And it's not just something that it's not just kind of playing the hits. Right. Yeah. That's like usually my go-to question to a brewery is like, what, what is the brewer drinking? What's the head mm. brewer, brewmaster? What's the production team most stoked about right now? Because they know what's up. Like they know what uh-huh. they're putting their time and energy and thought and passion into. I don't care what your most, I don't care what your top seller is. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe, and then maybe that they don't have to be mutually exclusive either, but yeah, like that particular example, it's like, yeah, this brewery has a hazy IPA, but I know from talking to staff that like no one here is passionate about it. It's just something they do because it is their top seller. Um, These guys care about traditional German styles and there's a whole laundry list of those on this menu. So I'd start there. I'd start with what they care about. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Curveball question. Mm Mm-hmm. We're talking a lot about craft beer here. What other craft category are you either historically really interested in and curious about, or maybe it's a more recent development? So not talking about, you know, another brewery or something, but outside of the craft brewing space, what other category of craft? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Curveball question gets a curveball answer. Okay. Um, I am... I'm very interested in this psychedelic revolution that's happening, Hmm. um, especially in Western culture. Uh, And it's very obvious that it's happening when you have, you know, Netflix putting out multiple original series documentaries around uh, this subject area. But, um, you know, New Image, the name comes from me really thinking about where I was with my mental health at the time and wanting to make changes. And I've talked to you a bit about like my journey with mental health. It's been a very out in the open conversation in our brand, it's been a big focus of ours. I think that the movement that's happening with psychedelics is a movement to reignite research into a field of study around human cognitive wellness that was cut off very unfortunately um, due to the powers at the time and their interests and investments they wanted to protect. But, you know, both from my own personal journey uh, and what psychedelics have done to help me emotionally process some of the things that I've been working on as an adult for many years, what I've seen for some of my friends and I, and genuinely the impact I think that this could have on society. Like if you asked me to hedge a bet on like what I think could save the world, I'd say psychedelics. Hmm. I mean, I think that they hold so much potential for unlocking human open-mindedness and empathy and creativity and really asking hard questions. And so it's kind of funny because I I know this is like the question's craft, right? Um, This is what I think is interesting about this particular movement because antithetically to what's happening with so much else in the space of psychopharmacology and big pharma in general, the whole movement of psychedelics taking this intentional route to decriminalization but not legalization is one of trying to keep this from being something that people are ever really trying to make money on. Mm -hmm. Um, Because money is the thing that keeps tainting the water in the field of wellness and healthcare. 
this is obviously a conversation that's been in the the public sphere for quite some time. Yeah. Um, and a very hot button political topic right now, money and healthcare. And it's one of the things that I really appreciate about the movement in psychedelia right now is to create this asset for human wellness, but to create it outside of the space that's primarily concerned with um, investor return and profit margin and repeatability because, um, and Michael Pollan speaks to this in the, that recent uh, how to change your mind docu series on Netflix, which go listen or go watch that listeners. It's great. Um, but uh, there's no incentive to make a mass produced psychedelic medicine for a big pharmaceutical company because it doesn't require repeated use. Yep. It doesn't require chronic yeah. um, reliance. It's more about one or a series of finite uh, sessions and efforts to change long-term behavior and have a long-term impact. And that's very difficult to monetize because it's either how much does that one very effective treatment cost or how do you get someone to use this in a way that they need it forever. So that that is a field of craft, you know, both from a perspective of growing in mycology. Mycology is actually has a lot of overlap with brewing because they're both in the fungus family. Yeast are a fungus um, and uh, mushrooms are a fungus. So they actually have similar like nutrient pathways and behaviors. We use a lot of the same terms when we're discussing the way um, mycelium move through a medium of uh, physical you know, dirt and substrate and uh, the way they consume carbohydrates or nutrients, their preferences around oxygen, so on and so forth. Uh, I was really intrigued when I started reading into mycology and looking at that it, with the lens of somebody who produces beer. A lot of the techniques required to do both successfully have a lot of overlap. So I'm interested in also like the manufacturing processes and the craft of mycology. But uh, as a movement, as a product, as a cultural element, I am very hopeful that this this movement might be arriving at a time that um, it's very necessary because, I mean, we know all too well how many existential crises we're being faced with culturally and, and how many of them really could be solved with cultural changes instead of, you know, technological advancements that just allow us to continue consuming unnecessarily large amounts of everything for the sake of consumption as mm -hmm. opposed to changing our mindset. So that's, yeah, my curveball answer to your that curveball is a, question. Yeah. <laughs> It's a good curveball answer and a massive topic. Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny. I mean, it's going, if, if the question were instead of like, it's funny that I don't, I still like psychedelics as a craft. It's like, yeah, that's, it is, except I don't think of it that way. Yeah. But if you were to say like, what category of craft is going to say, be the most different or have the most expanded role societally? That's probably the answer, mm -hmm. right? Over, say, the next decade, mm -hmm. 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And I mean, and, and the, the first psychedelic movement already has had very long-lasting impacts. And I think one of, the th one of the theories as to, like, why there's been a resurgence recently is that a lot of the people that were a part of the first psychedelic movement are now old enough that they are in the politically influential mm -hmm. spheres. Mm -hmm. And they know that a lot of the propaganda that was propaganda at the time was bullshit. And so they're not necessarily standing up on a pedestal and saying, let's make this happen, but they're at least getting out of the way. And uh, so that's, that's very interesting. But I mean, you look at the fifties and sixties and what psychedelics did at that time, like it almost got there. Um, and there's been a very thoughtful approach 
within that community to try to avoid the consequences of what went wrong the first time. But it's also an era where the, the access to information is so different. Um, and I think that that's very important to it. So, um, but yeah, there is like a lot of, you know, you, you meet the people that, that grow at home and you just look at the physical craft of making uh, mushrooms at home. And it's, it's so much like home brewing. Yeah. Like it really does look so similar to me, not just in the idea that you're making some, you know, controlled substance at home. Um, but just the whole technique, the biological pathways of the organisms involved, the, uh, routines and the careful, uh, practices that everybody has. And then everybody's personal little artistic, uh, introductions that they have of like, oh, I like to use this particular millet that I get from this hmm. local farm down the road uh, with just a little bit of this limestone, you know? It's the same kind of thing as the guy that's like, oh yeah, no, I only use Thomas Fawcett Maris Otter and Cascade Hops. Like, um, it just has the same vibe. Huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right, here's the deal. It is quite warm in Wheat Ridge this Friday afternoon. I am done with my pint of fanny pack. Mm -hmm. Pop quiz. What is the highest ABV beer you produce and or currently have here in Wheat Ridge? Probably the 9505, the beer that we made to celebrate the grand opening of this facility, or Intent. Both are barley wines. Both are barley wines. And what are they coming in at around? 16. 16. All right. Opposite side of that coin, what's the lowest ABV beer you make or yeah, currently have i think on draft right now we have fresh and new it was a collaboration with primitive beer out of longmont it's a grisette which is like a saison in almost every single way and i won't even try to get it explaining the difference um but it's a farmhouse ale it's got very agrarian flavors light easy drinking uh but it's like the the old world light easy drinking hoppy beer yeah what do you think the abv is 3.8 okay um, yeah, if I had to randomly guess on a very ballpark number, 3.8, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of figured you wouldn't be guessing. Can I go get one of those? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's pick this up in a second. Cool. We just had a very interesting conversation, quick conversation about how to pour different styles of beer into a glass. Mm -hmm. I think this should come up in like another conversation down the sure. road. We'll... we'll Make sure we're going to talk about like we're going to capture a few like super dork point, except like not super dork. Like you literally, I mean, this is useful every single time you are not drinking straight out of the can. How should I be pouring this beer? So we'll bracket that for right now. Yep. Um, future conversation topic. Okay. But we came back with two different beers. What do we have? Yeah. So we're starting here with Tigre Especial. Uh, is that what is... you just poured for yourself or yes, just me? Yeah. Okay. Now we're sharing this one for the moment. Um, so this is a Mexican style lager. Um, I actually had the, uh, production team, um, come up with this one. I've actually written like every single beer recipe we've made, which is like at this point, probably six or 700, yeah. uh, strong, uh, in the last seven years. And this was the first one that I handed off to, um, a team of employees and mm. I told them, here's the thing, you get to come up with the beer recipe, that's the part everybody wants to do. Uh, you also have to come up with the branding, which is the hard uh, part. Yeah. Um, and they did a great job. Uh, they worked with our graphic designer and I think they came up with a really, really cool concept. It's got this luchador theme. 
So yeah, that's Tigre Especial, and it's just a simple low ABV lager. It's made with malt from a company based out of Fort Collins called Troubadour Maltings. Um, and we used their serenade malt, which is sort of a Vienna style, uh, malt akin to this old world German, uh, base malt and then flaked maize. Um, so it's, uh, it's a really just light, easy drinking beer with a lot of flavors. It's got, you know, characteristics of honey and almond and then kind of corn flaky sweetness, but then it finishes very dry and crisp. Did it's, you just say corn flaky sweetness? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like Frosted Flakes. They're more than good. <laughs> Frosted Flakes is different from Corn Flakes. Corn Flakes, most boring cereal, like terrible thing to get as a kid. Frosted Flakes, game on. Yeah, totally. Okay, so Frosted Flakes, not Corn Flakes. I would still say it's more like Corn Flakes because it doesn't have the cloying sugary sweetness. But it is that more I than... I apparently loved so much but it is, as a six-year-old. It is more than good. <laughs> It is more it than is good. It is more than good. Honey and almond. Honey I would not almond. have expected that out of a Mexican style lager. Oh, but it's always been there. <laughs> you didn't even mention limes. Yeah, I mean, you can throw a lime in this if you want. Like, that's fine. Like, drink, drink. Would you be you... mad if I did though? No, like, uh, well, you honestly know, though. No, honestly no, though. No, not honest... fake. Not fake. I'm Brandon. I'm here. Yeah. Enjoy your beer however you like. Here's if the I thing. was like, hey man, you got a lime. You'd pre, be like pre-psychedelic Brandon <laughs> might have cared, but, uh, I don't know. Not really though. Um, honestly, I have really, I've gone through this phase that a lot of people go through as producers of their respective thing, be that beer, skis, bikes, whatever. Um, cause those are the only things anybody makes beer, skis and bikes. Um, and that's why your podcasts cover every topic available in the world. <laughs> um, but, uh, Whatever it is you make, you tend to get really attached to this idea of what producers think somebody, something should be and how producers think consumers should respect and enjoy something. But like what I've learned is that we are an entertainment company more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Like we facilitate social exchange. We facilitate um, personal enjoyment, artistic intrigue, uh, you know, self-indulgence and self-care, hopefully, um, when people are drinking responsibly. But um, people can do that however the fuck they want. Like, if you think this tastes better with a lime, put a lime in it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not here to tell you how to enjoy the thing I make. Um, I would just appreciate that if you that you enjoy my version, yeah. you know, um, and then do it in whatever way you want. Um, yeah, you know, so you know what I think would be. You an, want a lime? You know what I think would be an amazing addition to this Mexican style lager? Hmm. Just put some frosted flakes in there. Just oh yeah, a little dabble, just a little crushed. Talk up. about more than good. <laughs> okay, it's uh, bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love to hear you talk about another brewery that has been a bit of an inspiration to you. Hmm. Could this could have been from a long time ago or a more recent thing? We once had a, a ski manufacturer on Gear Thirty who shall remain nameless right now. Mm-hmm who basically was kind of like, yeah, I mean, all skis suck. So we started making skis to finally get like a good ski out there. Wow. And I was like, yeah, that's just not true, dude. Yeah, seriously. But um, um, no, that's not how I feel. <laughs> I feel humbled and honored to have some of the peers that I have. Um, and I have so many, so many mentors and people that I look up to that it's hard to pinpoint one. Um, 
I would say that uh, a brewery that we've recently, actually, we just released a collaboration with these guys last week, uh, Jester King out of uh, Dripping Springs, Texas. Hmm. Um, you know, Jeff Stuffings is the proprietor and uh, brewmaster, head brewer for Jester King. He was winning James Beard Awards and um, writing books about mixed culture and sour beer brewing when I was like getting into home brewing. Um, and then two years ago, I got an opportunity to travel down, stay on the farm property down there and produce beers with him. Um, and it was really cool because I've looked up to him for a lot of reasons for a lot of years for what he's done specifically with beer. Um, and then going and experiencing the environment that they've created uh, it's a 40 acre farm. Um, and they've got a running trail and they have cabins you can stay in. Like it's, it's really an amazing place. Like it's, it's just unreal. Their beers are wonderful and they truly do things that they are genuinely interested in knowing full well that they may not all sell the way they need to. Um, but what really inspired me the most getting to know them was the culture that they have with their people. Um, they're, their company like top to bottom, like everybody knows what's going on with everything else. They have a mutual interest in success across the board. And it's not this like, you know, I'm doing this and I should be making this and that person only does that. So they should be making that and so on and so forth. It's this really strong community that they have there. Um, as well as the way that they have navigated and you know, they've been around long enough to experience a couple of industry trends and, have the opportunity to make those choices. Like, do we, do we start just making things that we're not passionate about in order to facilitate sales? Or do we reevaluate the way that we're approaching doing something that we're really proud of? Um, but also like being able to monetize it by restructuring. And for them, that looks like becoming a more retail focused and specifically more restaurant focused company. And thinking of them more as it send themselves more as a destination that people in the Austin Metro come out to. Um, and they've done really well with that and they've built an amazing place. So it's been cool to have these mentors that make beer I'm very inspired by, have a culture I'm very inspired by, and who I've seen pivot successfully through several changes both economically and with just the cyclical nature of a craft industry without losing their core essence and ethos so yeah wow i think we need a field trip sometime oh god yes yeah tell me the next time you're going i talked about going down there in like october november when it's not a thousand yeah, degrees that sounds perfect <laughs> yeah um because it is it's hot i mean i grew up in georgia but man texas is hot <laughs> turns out um, texas is hot turns out, in texas, the summer <laughs> yeah no wonder everyone's so angry <laughs> like it's just hot <laughs> well anyway that sounds cool and i i would love to tag along yeah uh if uh yeah so we can either call it a field trip or me just tagging along and crashing the party i don't really care well there's actually some good climbing to be done around there huh um yeah are you, um, you're not climbing much these days, are you? Not anymore. Yeah. No. Um, I, I broke my foot riding motocross when I was 14. And at that particular time, my mom was like terrified of any surgery for any reason. So I did not get the surgery that I kind of needed to prevent developing arthritis in my late twenties and my left foot. Um, and it's, it's not very bad, but it's, it gets particularly bad in climbing shoes um, to the point where I just couldn't continue to do it in the way I wanted to anymore. Um, it was just 
too limited by that injury. Um, but there was a good chunk of time where I was very dedicated to it. And you know, the other thing about climbing is like at least skis, you can beat up for 20 years and choose to keep skiing on them. It's not necessarily like the safest idea, but it's not like a complete death sentence. Climbing gear expires, you know, it's like one of the only sports where like the gear has a pretty short lifespan and is expensive. Like buying a new $200 rope every couple of years. If you're not really making use of that, then like monetizably it's, it just starts to be like, man, is this worth it? I did eight climbs on this $200 rope and now it's technically at retirement age. Like, wow. You hang out with way more responsible climbers than I do. <laughs> Cause no, I'm not can't really think of any of my climbing friends who are like, oh man, eight climbs on that rope, time for a new one. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that's safe, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know those people. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. And like maybe I'm overly attentive and, and was at the time with having my log of sun hours and fall numbers and everything. But you know, it's what's recommended for how you're supposed to treat that safety gear and um you know, everyone teach their own, do whatever you want to do. But, um, yeah, for me, I found it difficult to reconcile the way that you are told to use that gear safely and the lifespan that it has for the price point that it has. Um, as well as mainly the foot arthritis thing. That was kind of the big thing. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to let you go soon, but I'm kind of cleaning my glass right now. Cause you had first mentioned fresh and new, mm-hmm. but then we came back and I'm trying the Tigre Especial. Mm-hmm. Is that your preferred pronunciation or do you just go Tigre a special? I'd really prefer that you have a rose in between your teeth when you say that to me. <laughs> Tigre especial. Tigre especial. And then if you could like dip someone real low and then like spin them out on the dance floor, like that, that's really what I'd prefer. That's the proper pronunciation. It sounds like that's, that's the new like marketing campaign. Yeah. Me. So if, if you got any good like dates coming up, maybe go salsa dancing uh-huh. and grab a couple of Tigre especial. <laughs> Wow. All right. Um, uh, we've got fresh and new. I'm going with a bit of the side pour. Is yeah. That a, yeah. Okay. Um, this is your 3.8 new image brewing and primitive beer. You guys just produce a lot of different beers. Mm-hmm. I was kind of saying with you, like every new podcast we put out, I feel like you have a new beer coming out kind of oh, simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Or two or three. Um, you know, one-offs and side projects and continuation series, they all have very purposeful um, elements of experimentation and they all inform what we're doing with our year-round beers. And I think that it's it's a really healthy balance to have both because we we reach out and we push up against our own edges um, and we also test the edges of consumers and what they might like and might not like by doing a bunch of different beers and we get to experiment with different ingredients, different processes, yeast and bacteria, packaging uh, methodologies, stabilities, lab studies. We learn so much from trying all these new things. Um, It's kind of like cross training. Um, You know, when uh, you're just skiing every day or you're just mountain biking every day, you atrophy a lot of muscles, uh, and skills that you need, um, to even do that thing you're training for all the time better. And what actually makes you better at that core thing is to 
get away from that core thing and do other stuff that flexes different muscles and uses different energy pathways and uses different neural pathways. And I see what we do with one-off and series beers in a similar light where it's, it's us getting out of the straightforward routine of core beer brewing to stretch different muscles and learn different techniques and explore different practices so that we can then get better at doing the things that we're doing as our core focus. That's an interesting beer. Mm-hmm. My first thought, I love that you love, you're always interested in my very non-professional <laughs> <laughs> uh, opinions on this stuff. I was like, that smells like a field, mm-hmm. like a field of flowers. No, I think right before when we got this beer, I described it as like an aggressively agrarian hoppy beer. Um, like this is like the old, like the OG hoppy beer of the 1600s. Um, back, back at the time, uh, the predominant brewers were women. The predominant beer making technique was home brewing. Um, it wasn't this manufactured large scale product. It was something that people were cooking and preparing at home the way they prepared food. And this particular style was prepared for miners in the northern French, southern Belgian regions. Like coal miners or mm-hmm. something, not yeah, little so children. Grisette yeah. um, is, uh, I believe, uh, French for like little gray. Um, and it referred to the color of the miners coming out of the mines. Um, and this was the beer made for miners, low ABV. It had enough hops to make it, um, really at the time it was mainly about package stability or shelf stability. And I'm sure they just had it in jars or whatever. Um, but they, somewhere along the line in like the 1500s, they learned that adding more hops to things made things more solution stable and, um, aseptic. Uh, but also the, the bitterness is... Um, very quenching and, um, you know, you, nowadays we use bitterness to cut through the, uh, thickness of a pizza, but back then it probably just washed the coal out of your teeth. Um, so, uh, Which, I mean, best, best consumed after a long day down the shaft. <laughs> wow. There's your mark. Or down the pit as down they the say pit. in Wales. Um, I need to let you get back to it. Where can people find new image? Um, a lot of places throughout yeah. Colorado, um, but about to be even more. So yeah. this is exciting. Yeah. We're, we're distributed all throughout the front range of Colorado from, um, Fort Collins down to Colorado Springs. And then as far West currently, like as of today, as far West as Summit County with a little bit, uh, into Eagle County. Um, but we are expanding, uh, in about two weeks, we'll be starting to send beer out uh, to the the west side of the state, um, the southwest corners, and really filling out the remainder of the mountain regions. So, you know, the Gunnison Valley, uh, the Arkansas River Valley, uh, we're looking down in the southwest towards uh, Pueblo and Pagosa, um, Telluride, Uray, uh, all these places that we haven't been available in the past, Western Slope, um, Aspen. Hmm. Uh, so we're, we're opening up that whole territory that I articulated very poorly in terms of, uh, directionality. Um, but, uh, yeah, the but basically mountains. a lot of cool mountain towns, a lot of cool mountain towns, yeah. places that I want to spend more and more time, yeah. um, places I have been spending more and more time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, communities that we want to invest in and that's kind of be- become our goal is continue to put our beer in the places that we just want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can be there more. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's why why I moved to Colorado in the first place is to spend more time in the mountains. So 
let's get our beer there so that I can justify being there more. <laughs> Do you have a sense of how quickly that's going to happen? Um, our load in is going to be kind of a month long process. So we'll start seeing our first uh, shipments going out to the mountains the second and third weeks of August. Huh. Um, and they'll be small at first, but they'll be picking up with time because we just have to ramp up production and figure out the right allocations of product yeah. to make sure that it gets everywhere without hurting any of our current distributed territories in the front range. Yeah. Um, but I would say that probably by mid-September, we should be pretty well um, into the majority of that territory um, and really aiming to grow it as we approach ski season because we'll be starting to introduce it as we're going into mud season. Um, and then I'd say like really December, January is when we should be fully fledged in those territories as ski season's picking up and yeah, as we're getting after it again. Right. It's going to be cool. And there's going to be some new image at the blister summit in mm -hmm. February. Yep. That I'm, we hadn't really totally talked about that, but I'm just telling you that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning this now and I'm very excited. <laughs> okay. This has been really cool, man. Um, like. By which I mean, like, from meeting you to the many conversations to skiing together to mountain biking together um, to getting in the weeds with how you're thinking about different things. I am always very flattered when you ask my opinion <laughs> about some of this stuff. I find it hilarious and surprising, and I, I'm happy to give it. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate what you do and how you do it. And... Um, I know that people who really know beer, you know, would kind of be nodding with what I'm saying right now. And uh, so that's kind of what we like around here, right? I mean, like we kind of said at the top, I mean, people that are really crafting with a lot of intentionality and thinking hard about how to do things like the best way they can and how to continue to evolve that and tweak that. And um, yeah, so um, this is cool. And Thanks again for effectively providing kind of the inspiration for this whole new crafted podcast and this blister craft collective. And um, we're really excited about where this is going to go. And honestly, I'm really excited because like, I'm just going to learn so much <clears throat> about so many different industries over the next several years um, and meet really passionate, interesting people. And so um, thanks for setting me on my own little new odyssey here. Yeah. yeah. I'm very flattered to have been a part of uh, the development of this and to be credited with that in any way. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's like we were talking about earlier, getting outside of your little kind of echo chamber of things <laughs> is such a healthy practice. Um, I think it helps you appreciate the thing that you're most focused on that much more, but it also it takes away some of that feeling of isolation that everything you're experiencing is limited to this vacuum of a industry that you're focused on, be mm. that skiing, outdoor sports, electronics, tech, whatever. Yeah. Like there are so many overarching themes that all these different industries experience and it's cool. And what I think you will see as you explore and talk to different people in craft, that is just how it's different, a different medium every time. But so much of what goes into it, so much of the culture that surrounds it is so familiar. That's been one of my favorite things that I've learned as I've gotten to know more and more people in all different types of craft. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Here, here. Thank you, sir. 
Yeah. I look forward to the next one when yeah. we talk about how to pour beer. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure we'll come up with several other uh, fun topics too. So yeah. till, till the next time. Yeah. Well, it's been a great pleasure. So thank you so much. All right. Well, that's it for our very first episode of Crafted. I want to say thanks to Brandon for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be talking to you again on our other podcasts on the Blister Podcast Network. And we'll catch you back here again next Wednesday for episode number two of Crafted. Bye, everybody.